Welcome to another edition of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, the award-winning show covering fishing, hunting, conservation, destinations, and other outdoors recreation across the greater Northwest. Northwestern Outdoors is brought to you by Max Lur, Sportsman's Warehouse, Sina Sea Seafood, and Wallowa County Chamber of Commerce in the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program. And now, let's see what's happening this week with your host, John Cruz. Welcome aboard. A lot of folks look forward every year to the holiday season, but me... I look forward to mid-October because in Washington State, this is the most popular hunting weekend of the year. It is the Modern Firearm Deer Season opener. It is also the opening weekend for ducks and geese. And I'm going to be in a blind this weekend with my best friend Rusty Johnston, seeing if we can down ourselves a limit of ducks out in the Columbia Basin. And if we do so in a hurry, well, we'll probably get the bass boat out and see if we can troll up some walleye out of Potholes Reservoir because the fishing has been pretty hot. Got that on good authority from well-known area guide Shelby Ross with Ross Outdoors Adventures, who has just been slaying the walleye as of late. So that's going to be my little cast and blast weekend, and hopefully you're out there too. After all, there's a lot of opportunities. Duck season opened up in eastern Oregon last weekend. It's opening up this weekend in other parts of Oregon. Deer hunting is underway in Idaho, as well as a good amount of Wyoming. And let's not forget pheasant hunting in Montana. That opens up this weekend, too, and brings all sorts of hunters and their dogs afield. Whatever you're doing, I wish you much success and much fun. This week on the show, we are actually going to be talking about a great place to go wildlife watching. When you think of doing that sort of thing this time of year, you probably think of places like Yellowstone National Park or Grand Teton National Park. But have you been to the Bison Range in western Montana? I just got back from there, and it was my second visit. And I've got to tell you, there is a lot of wildlife to see there. Not only bison, but also deer and elk, bighorn sheep. I've seen a badger up close there, and although I haven't seen them, I know there's also cougar and bear and even wolverines, believe it or not. In addition to this, the bison range is under new ownership and management. It is no longer operated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. No, it's been turned over to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes of the Flathead Reservation. And Stephanie Gillen, with their Natural Resources Department, is going to join us to tell you about the bison range and how this came to be, as well as helping you plan a trip to this wonderful place that's a lot closer to a lot of our listeners then Yellowstone or Grand Teton and offers an absolute world-class wildlife viewing and photography experience. After we visit the Bison Range, we've got some news to share about fishing and rivers. And then we're going to talk to Lars Daleside with the National Rifle Association. The topic, Ballot Initiative 114. It's being voted on in Oregon. And even though we don't usually do Second Amendment interviews on this show, I feel compelled to do so this time, and here's why. If this bill passes, it will not only ban 10-round or greater magazines, but it's going to make it almost impossible for you to purchase or even transfer a firearm without jumping through a whole bunch of hoops, and no funding is being provided for agencies who have to put these hoops in place for you to jump through. It essentially means you might not be able to buy a firearm in Oregon at all. Before we get into that, though, let's check in and see what David Sparks has for us this week on Sportsman Spotlight. If you've ever seen golf trick shots, which are stunning to watch, well, 
Archers, from bowhunting.com, you have to see this. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. In a recent bowhunting.com staff meeting, Justin Czar brought up a guy by the name of James Jean. Have you ever seen this guy shoot, he asked. The rest of the team went to grabbing their phones to pull up Jean's Instagram account, at James Jean Trick Shots. They found a long list of videos with a wide range of shots. Some were the standard trick shots you've likely seen from exhibition shooters like Byron Ferguson. But there were plenty of shots that'll leave you asking, is that even possible? Some of the shots are so crazy, the skeptics quickly call bull and assume it's merely fancy editing. Bowhunting.com decided to connect with Gene for an interview to get to the bottom of what he does and how he makes it happen. You can check out his video for a look at some of James Gene's trick shots. He started shooting a bow very early on as a child. Ever since I can remember, I had a bow, says Gene. I had little toy bows and then a little bear compound bow when I was around nine years old. I did a lot of shooting as a kid, then took a break until I was 18. That's when I got into bow hunting and fell in love with it. I was back to shooting all the time. Again, find him on YouTube and watch him shoot. James, J-E-A-N, Gene. For over 40 years, the Ag Information Network has been providing news and information for the most important industry in the world, agriculture. The Ag Information Network gives you worldwide updates from local producers to regional organizations, from major crops like wheat and corn to animal agriculture to specialty crops like apples, almonds, and cherries. We report on stories that mean the most to you. Online at aginfo.net, the Ag Information Network, trusted and transparent journalism lasting for the next generation. For the last 40 years, the Ag Information Network has been the source of news for farmers and ranchers. Yet we have never seen such an assault on farming and our food supply as we do today. From fuel to fertilizer, farmers are facing unprecedented economic challenges. This is why agriculture news that farmers receive comes from the Ag Information Network reaching coast to coast. Deep roots in farming and decades of reporting, the Ag Information Network, trusted and transparent journalism for generations. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We are broadcasting from the Bison Range that is now managed by the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes of the Flathead Reservation. And I've had an incredible morning here on the range, took a drive, got to see, of course, tons of bison really up close, got to see white-tailed deer, including some really nice bucks, got to see the biggest pronghorn I've ever seen in my life, and a nice six-by-six bull elk that was laying down next to Mission Creek. It was a wonderful day, and, and I just scratched the surface on the wildlife you can see here. With us here to tell you more about the bison range is Stephanie Gillen. She's the information education program manager. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I'll tell you what. Folks go to Yellowstone National Park and Glacier National Park to see big game. And you come here and you can spend a morning on the bison range and have just as good, if not a better experience. And you don't have all the crowds. Yes. So we are kind of tucked away off the beaten path, but 
people still do find us. We have around 350 bison on the range. We had 50 calves born this year, and we have around 300 elk as well. We are in the beginning of the rut for elk, and so they've been bugling about three weeks now, which is pretty amazing. We also have mule deer and white-tailed deer, as you stated, on the range. We have a small population of pronghorn and a small population of bighorn sheep even. So yeah, it's amazing to see the variety of wildlife we have here on the range. And not only big game, I was here about six years ago, and I remember seeing a badger, like, just right beside the road. It's like, this is super cool. And boy, what a mean looking animal. I mean, you've got all sorts of other species in addition to the big game, don't you? Yes, we do. This is a pretty amazing habitat and we do have a variety of species. Within the Mission Valley, we have an amazing variety of species for our high elevation Mission Mountains. We have wolverines, we have lynx. Yeah, it's amazing the variety of wildlife that live here. So yeah, I mean, you have the possibility I know a couple years ago we had a wolverine spotted on the range. And you know, that makes sense. I'm a wildlife biologist for 21 years. You never say never with wildlife. They obviously have to move in between to get to another location. We have mountain lion down by the creek. We have bobcat that have been spotted as well. So it's definitely a nice piece of habitat we have for a variety of not only small mammals, uh, big game, but birds as well. Oh, definitely saw a ton of raptors out there today. Everything from northern harriers to what looked like a golden eagle perched on a rock on a hillside, too. So definitely, if you're a bird watcher, this is also a good place to come to. One other species I should ask about, and that would be the bears. I know you have them here. I'm sure you have black bears. Do you have any grizzlies here or not? The Mission Valley is a very... We have a... a very healthy population of grizzly bears uh, within our northern continental divide system. So when something passes on the range, we let it go back to nature, let the scavengers, you know, have uh, clean it up and we put a camera on it. So we've had pictures from a grizzly bear and even wolves that pass through. So yes, we do have bears. (laughs) Wow. What an incredible place to visit. Let's talk about the history of this place because it really does go back to the tribes. They were the ones that actually helped bring back the bison from extinction by bringing them to this range. Yes. We are one of eight reservations within the state of Montana. These represent 12 nations. So on the Flathead Indian Reservation, there are three tribes, the Salish, the Kalispell, otherwise known as Pondere, and the Kootenai or Kasanka tribe as well. The Kalispell and Salish tribes, they have the same dialect. Our language is pretty similar, where Kasanka or Kootenai languages is very different. So we do have free apps that are available where you can hear the language spoken. The bison range in 1855, when our treaty was signed, was uh, within our reservation and was, you know, set aside for the exclusive use of tribal members from this reservation. Um, In the early 1900s, 1908, 1909, is when the Homesteading Act, the Dawes Act, came into play, where land was sectioned off and given, I think, 160 acres per tribal head of household and about 80 acres per 
individual tribal member 18 years or older. So that left over a million acres, which is very small compared to our over 20 million acres of our Aboriginal territory, once spanned eastern Washington, panhandle of Idaho, all of western Montana, and, you know, down to 1.3 million acres, which is what our reservation is now. With the Dawes Act, the Homestead Act, that allowed over 1 million acres to be opened up and deemed surplus land from the government. And that's when non-members were allowed to move on to our reservation. How did the bison get established here on the range? So please visit our website at bisonrange.org and you can watch a small film. It's a 28-minute film titled In the Spirit of Atatitze. So we have depended on wildlife, you know, for our survival. Growing up, with creation stories, we were taught that animals were here before us. They prepared the earth for us. Some volunteered to be food for us, and that including bison. And so, you know, our people, our ancestors depended on bison. Well, when their numbers started to dwindle, when the railroad came out west, it allowed hunters easier access to harvest these animals. We've all seen the pictures of the hundreds of thousands of skulls that were then shipped back to eastern U.S. for fertilizer. We We had a tribal member from our Kalispell tribe go to our leadership at the time, and he requested, you know, just seeing how numbers were dwindling, wanted to go and get orphan calves from Yellowstone Park to bring them back here to help save bison. You know, they've given us so much in the past, we wanted to return that. And he was not granted permission. His son carried on his vision, and his son, Tlatatitze, came to our membership later and requested permission, which he was granted. He made the trip and came back with about six orphan bison calves, and they grew up close to where we are today, close to the bison range near the Flathead River. So his herd grew to a couple hundred. So one great thing about this museum that we remodeled, it took about 13 months to remodel. This is a story, our story told by us. So that really hit home when we had our first local schools come in. Because even though we're on a reservation, we're not taught our history in our own public schools. So once those first schools came and I gave the presentation, it was like, wow, this is why, you know, this is amazing. This is to see it full circle. So one thing about history is sometimes things are not correct. So Samuel Walking Coyote has been wrongly credited for saving bison, but in reality... He was Latatitze's stepfather who sold them while Latatitze was away. So he was wrongly given credit for that. But from there, you know, Allard and Pablo, who are also tribal members, continued to raise the herd into about 700 animals, again, still along the Flyhead River. And once allotment came, once the homesteaders were allowed to move onto the reservation, in came fences. Within our Salish language, we have no word for ownership. So, you know, and fences were something new. Fences meant that the bison had to go. They were not allowed to roam freely along the river, so they were sold. Ironically, the bison range, when the bison range was formed, they needed bison. So ancestors from the herd that was originally here came back to the bison range, and then some were also sent to Yellowstone Park to augment that herd that was depleting as well. All right, we are coming up against a hard break, so if you don't mind, stick around for a minute here, and we'll come right back, and we'll talk about visiting the Bison Range. Thank you. 
come to Oregon's Wallowa County for outdoors adventure. Hike, ride, paddle, fish, or sightsee to your heart's content. And then visit one of our wonderful towns, whether it be Joseph with its beautiful bronze statues, our county seat in Enterprise, or one of our charming small towns like Wallowa, Imnaha, or Troy, where you can eat, shop, and sleep before continuing your adventure the next day. Plan your visit now at WallowaCountyChamber.com. That's WallowaCountyChamber.com. From a bull elk ripping a bugle across the valley to wing beats on a duck marsh, public lands and waters are integral to our outdoor heritage. Become a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and stand up for our public lands and waters. Visit backcountryhunters.org today. with more of the great outdoors on Northwestern Outdoors Radio with John Cruz. It's time for another Max Minute, brought to you every week by Max Lure. Last week, we talked to Bob Loomis about catching trout in September when the water is warm. Well, now it's October and the water's starting to get cool. Bob, welcome back to the show. Thanks, John. How are we going to catch them now that that water is cooling? Well, you know, now that the water's cooling and these fish are going on the feed bag because they know that, guess what? They're going to run out of food at one point or another, so you get everything you can get. Going to larger profiles works much better for most fisheries, and trout are not any different. One of the things that that I would go to, one of my first go-tos, would be a double whammy original. You know, it's a number three Indiana metal blade with uh, high UV beads, a double hook set up, and I'm going to tell you what, you can't beat a double whammy for this time of the year. It works absolutely fantastic, whether you're fishing it behind a dodger, whether you're using flashlights, whether you're fishing it just direct. It works very, very well. The second thing that I would go to would be a, basically it's called a smile blade spin drift trout. And the spin drift hook is a, basically a VMC product that looks like a slow death hook. It's got a swivel on top, so when you thread a nightcrawler or a bait on there or even a plastic on there, it rotates like a wounded bait. So using that along with the high UV beads and a smile blade works unbelievably well during this time of the year. All right. And same question as last week. When the water's warm, the trout are deep, water's cool, are they rising up towards the top of the water column? Most trout are going to be in the top 20 feet of the, the water column regardless of where they're at. Now, during the middle of the days, yes, when it's hot out, they're going to go out and they're going to go sulk. But bottom line is their their whole life revolves around food. So they are going to stay in that top 20-foot surface. So you don't have to do a lot of heavy stuff. Fishing that top 0 to at least 10 to 15 feet when it's cold works very, very well. Well, get out there while the trout are on the bite this month. Lures to get are the Double Whammy, the original for Max Lure, and the Smile Blade Spindrift Trout. Look for them at sporting goods stores near you or online anytime at maxlure.com. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter, full of the gear you need to succeed this hunting season. Firearms, ammo, archery equipment, decoys, clothing, boots, and more. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Warehouse. Better still, the knowledgeable staff can help you with tips to help you bag a trophy or a limit. Find a location near you or shop online today at sportsmans.com. 
Hey, we're talking to Lance Mers today with Max Lure Company about a brand new lure that's just slaying the trout out there on area lakes. It's the Smile Blade Spin Drift Trout Lure from Max Lure Company. Lance, what makes this lure so special? Well, we've got our Max Lure patented Smile Blade, our high UV components, and the Spin Drift hook, which gives it a great corkscrew action in the water. There you go, folks. All three components help you catch more fish. The Smile Blade Spin Drift Trout Lure, only for Max Lure Company. We're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio, and we are back at the Bison Range with Stephanie Gillen. We want to help you plan a visit here and tell you how it's done, because this is a little different. You don't just get out of your car and wander around the range. Let's talk about how people experience a day at the Bison Range. And it starts at the Visitor Center, doesn't it? Yes. We ask you to please come to the Visitor Center, check out our newly remodeled museum and our gift shop, where we support our local tribal member artists. There you will purchase a pass and you have options for a day pass which is $10 per vehicle and an annual pass which is $20 per vehicle so Every year we kind of visit, you know, this is our first year. So tribal ownership happened January 2nd of this year. So we're kind of, you know, figuring out what's working best and kind of adjusting to their adaptive management, I guess. So once you get your pass, you head out of the range and there's two ways to do it. Why don't you go ahead and talk about the drives you can take? Yes. So we have two options. Our lower drive is open year round, and that's the Buffalo Prairie Drive. And it's weather depending. It's a dirt road. The The entire uh, tour is dirt roads. So if we get snow, if we get weather, you know, we might close it to plow. The other option is a seasonal road that is open from Mother's Day weekend is generally when we open that drive. And it closes, you know, mid to late October. Again, weather depending. These are two dirt road drives. There are rules and regulations where we, there are a couple walking paths along the upper Red Sleep Drive, and those are the only areas you can get out of your vehicle to walk. We do have a day use area down below. There's a walking path around the pond. You're allowed there. But other than that, we ask everyone to stay within their vehicles, not only for their safety, but first and foremost, safety of our wildlife question here. I saw some signage out there that indicated you could be next to your vehicle. Is that correct? Yes, you can be next to your vehicle as long as you don't leave your vehicle. And that's one thing we're kind of looking into because once you give people the... The leeway, the leeway to wander, I get that, yes. I get that. But I have to admit, as a photographer, you know, sometimes it's hard to get that shot if it's on the wrong side of the car. And so you have to kind of get out and shoot over the hood. But I completely understand why you want people in the vehicle or next to the vehicle. And the wildlife's used to people in vehicles, aren't they? They are, definitely. Once you get out of the vehicle, that's a different experience for them as well. So one thing we experience is that I believe some people get a false sense of security because the range is surrounded by a fence. And sadly, for wildlife, they're not treated as wildlife. And people think that they are allowed to get close to these animals when, in fact, they're wild and their first instinct is to protect themselves. You literally had recently some people trying to pet 
some of the the bison calves, that's a recipe for disaster. Exactly. And we just ask, you know, respect for wildlife. Please practice common sense. Uh, We just don't want to be in the news or you in the news, I guess. So we do have within the museum a year-old bison in its prime, you know, in the middle of the museum. That is for people to get their pictures that they want to look at the animal up close and personal. You know, it's, it's a mounted specimen. And so please Please come see that one and uh, respect wildlife and not harass them out on the drive. I'll tell you what, though, folks, you are going to get plenty close to the bison on the drive. They are not disturbed by your vehicles at all. They will be right next to you and they have not a care in the world. But just drive slow. Definitely don't want to hurt the wildlife that's out here. You're here to see the wildlife, not to hurt wildlife. And it truly is a world-class experience. Let's talk briefly about the day-use area. It's pretty darn expansive. There's a lot of room down there to, to spread out and have a picnic or a gathering. And like you said, there's the little trails you can go on. Though I understand that there are some elk that hang out there you have to be careful of. Exactly. So it is an amazing area. And, you know, we have potential to do, you know, build more in that uh, section. We do encourage families to come. When I was a kid, there used to be a baseball field. And so my family would come and play softball there. So we leave that area open. That's actually where we had our uh, celebration. And we're thinking about having an annual celebration, which included a powwow. But we do have a lot of local school groups that come in. We use that area for all sorts of activities. And uh, there's a lot of potential. We hope to get a playground in the future. But we do. We uh, have some resident elk who who wouldn't want to visit uh, and eat the grass that's mowed and watered. Like Stephanie said, a couple great little trails to hike down there. And there's also fishing access at Mission Creek, including handicap fishing access. Now, you do need a tribal permit. Can you buy that here at the Visitor Center? Uh, Yes, you can. You can buy that at the front desk. And, you know, we do have some limited area for fishing. And, you know, we ask you to respect our rules and regulations. And that, again, is for your safety and the safety of wildlife. There's another trail outside the day use area that's also a fisherman's access trail too, isn't there? Yes. Right now we're currently working on getting signage up to let fishermen know just how far they can go. Again, once we kind of open the door, it it tends to be swung open and kind of taken advantage of. So we're in our first year of trying to retrain people who've had access to Well, bottom line, folks, is in addition to bringing your camera and your binoculars, you might want to bring your fly rod and do a little casting for some rainbows and maybe some brown trout here on Mission Creek. Definitely worth your while, too. We've got to go, but what is the website folks should go to to find out what the winter hours are going to be and more information about the bison range? You can go to bisonrange.org or visit us on Facebook, and that's where we try to update our hours and information. We post pictures, so all sorts of great information. It's the Bison Range. It's in western Montana, and if you are looking for a first-class, world-class wildlife watching experience, this is the place to come to. Again, bisonrange.org is the website, and look for Bison Range on Facebook, too. Stephanie, thanks for sharing all of this with us today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Thanks for inviting me.
Heading west from Montana to Washington State, the Department of Fish and Wildlife closed just about all of the coastal rivers and tributaries to salmon and other game fish. That started on October 8th. The reason? The rivers are very low because of a lack of rain and the harvest has been too high on the fish that are in these rivers. A lot of the fish haven't even come in yet because the waters are so low. So for now, the rivers will remain closed when the rains finally come. And the fish start coming in in better numbers. Managers will reassess this rule and hopefully we'll get those coastal rivers open again for salmon and maybe even some steelhead fishing. In other river-related news, this time the Snake River, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, came out with a new policy position. They now believe that the four lower Snake River dams should be breached. And that would represent the best chance struggling stocks of salmon and steelhead have for repopulating the Snake and Salmon Rivers and other tributaries in Idaho and southeast Washington and northeast Oregon. Does this mean that the dams are going to be breached in the next year or two? Oh no, not at all. But this is an important first step. It is a change. They have never expressed this opinion before. And it might eventually lead someday to these dams actually getting breached. Stay tuned. We will follow along as the news comes our way on this issue. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at Cena Sea Seafood. If you are looking for premium wild-caught seafood from Alaska, you've got to order it from Cena Sea. Their website is cenasea.com, and when you get there, you're going to find salmon. We're talking really good salmon here. We're talking coho salmon. We're talking Chinook salmon. And we are talking about the famed Copper River sockeye salmon. They've got a lot of other fish too. We're talking sablefish. We're talking halibut. We're talking lingcod. We're talking rockfish. Heck, they've even got oysters in stock. So check it all out. Go ahead and order some for a very special meal that you and a loved one or family and friends can enjoy. The website again, Cenasea, that's S-E-N-A-S-E-A dot com. And don't forget to use the promo code OUTDOORSRADIO for 10% off your entire order. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is the voice for your public lands, waters, and wildlife. From the Canadian Yukon to the Florida Everglades, we're stepping up to conserve North America's public lands, defend our hunting and fishing traditions, and expand access to the outdoors. Find out how you can get involved at backcountryhunters.org. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Lars Daleside on the line. He is a spokesman for the National Rifle Association. And folks, as you know, we don't usually get into Second Amendment issues on this show, but we've got to talk about a ballot measure in Oregon. It's ballot measure 114, and this is very, very dangerous if you are a firearms owner called the Reduction of Gun Violence Act. If it's passed, it would put together a registry, a government registry, of gun owners' personal information and firearms that would be published. It would require a permit to purchase any firearm. It would impose a delay on background checks, and it would ban any magazine over 10-round capacity. Lars, this is something else. Has this passed anywhere else? 
John, well, first and foremost, thank you for having me on the show. Nothing quite like this has passed anywhere else. There are bits and pieces, of course, that are laws in this state and that state, but no actual configuration like this. And it's just amazing because, as you said, this is called the Reduction of Gun Violence Act. And you'd think with a title like that, there's something in there about putting the bad guys in jail, somebody who's breaking the law, let's get them, let's give them a good long sentence, make sure that the streets are safe. But there's nothing in this measure, nothing at all, that will affect anybody who's breaking the law right now. It doesn't have to do with anything at all of those who are currently break the law. What this does, as you were pointed out, is it will turn people who are legally and responsibly owning firearms today, it will put them in jeopardy. And that's just unacceptable. Let's go ahead and run through this point by point. We're going to start off with the ban on ammunition magazines with more than 10 rounds. Washington State passed this. It has certainly not had any effect at all on crime. Homicide rates are sky high in the Seattle area. Go ahead and tell us a little bit more about how this ban would work in Oregon if passed. Well, I said it's a 10-round magazine ban. And why they say 10 rounds, who knows? And you'll probably hear me say this quite a bit, but this is a great example of people writing legislation about something they have no idea what they're talking about. It's like if all of a sudden the FDA came to me and said, Lars, we're looking for some new restrictions and registration things when it comes to heart transplants. Give us what you got. I don't know what I'm talking about on this run, and these people don't know what they're talking about when it comes to 10-round magazines. Most of the firearms that people buy out there come with more than 10-round magazines. Most of the magazines out there are more than 10-round magazines. And I will tell you this for certain, the bad guys, the ones that are carjacking and mugging on the streets and breaking into their homes and going into the businesses, they've got more than 10 rounds in their magazine. So what you're doing right now is you're trying to impose a restriction upon somebody who is only trying to protect themselves, their loved ones, their businesses, or their homes, and put them at a disadvantage when the bad guys come knocking. As a matter of fact, a lot of semi-automatic pistols that people buy for self-defense, whether it be a Glock or a Beretta or a Sig Sauer, especially a 9mm, they come standard with magazines that are over 10 rounds. Would this essentially take those firearms off the shelves? It's not necessarily those firearms off the shelf. It would be of what magazines can be sold with them. You can go ahead and buy a magazine that is 10 rounds. There are the firearm accessories folks that in the states that have these restrictions, those are the only magazines that they send out there. And, of course, the gun stores and the federally licensed firearms dealers in the state will only carry those type of magazines. But as I said before, it's not as if the bad guys are going to follow this law, which means that if, God forbid, you're in a situation where you've got to defend yourselves or your family, you know, you are underarmed from what the bad guys have. Let's talk about the one that I think is literally going to disarm a lot of people. So this measure requires a permit to purchase or transfer a firearm. The permit can only be issued by law enforcement. It has to be renewed every five years for a fee. You have to have classroom time, live fire time. It can only be offered by law enforcement certified instructors. So there is zero funding And there's zero infrastructure. I mean, law enforcement agencies all over Oregon, they are way down on personnel. They don't have the means to even offer this if this passes, do they? 
again, this is a great example of people writing legislation that they have no idea what they're writing about. They don't understand the subject matter. There are so many pitfalls in this permit to purchase section of the ballot initiative that it's difficult to know where to start. But $65, first and foremost, that you get to apply. That's just to apply. And when you're somebody who's living in a high crime area, because maybe that's what you can afford, that's where you grow up, whatever the choice might be, odds are that it's a place that, you know, you're struggling right now. You're trying to make decisions. You're wondering what you can do to defend yourself. And by putting this in place, you are denying those who aren't earning as much as some others the ability for them to be able to get a firearm to defend themselves. That's one. The other thing that you said that only law enforcement can teach this. It's not mandated that law enforcement teach it. It just says that only law enforcement can teach it. Well, show me a police department in Oregon that has some spare guys or gals that have the time to go out there and actually teach a firearm class. Right. How many cities are going through it to fund the police or trying to recover from the horrible idea to defund the police right now? They are underfunded. They are undermanned, and they don't have the time to do that. Now, as you said, not only is there nothing in there that makes them teach the class, there's nothing about how much the class will cost. So again, you're putting another barrier up there for people who are living in the lower income areas that aren't going to be able to take the time nor the money to be able to get the right to exercise a constitutional right. And that's just ridiculous. And then each and everything that you read in this, it's just more and more absurd. You need a firearm to take this classroom and live fire training course. But if you're a first-time gun owner, or you're hoping to be a first-time gun owner, you don't have a firearm yet. How are you supposed to get a firearm? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) If If you're going to borrow one, do you have to go through this whole process in order to legally borrow one from somebody else? Again, I can't get the firearm. It's a perfect catch-22, and it's amazing that nobody told them this as they were trying to write this up. I'm sorry. I can't help but think they knew this when they were writing this up. One other thing, I really want to hammer this home here. This isn't just going to the sporting goods store and buying a firearm. This includes if I, as a father, want to hand down a deer hunting rifle or a shotgun to my son or daughter, the same rules apply. They have to get this permit that may or may not be available from the local sheriff's office and go through all the training before they can get that. Is that right? Yes. That's insane. I have a niece who's down in Richmond, just fresh out of college, looking to start up her career and looking for a place. And Lord knows the places that she can afford are not the best of places. But if this were the law here in the great state, Commonwealth of Virginia, then I would not be legally allowed to loan her a firearm for self-protection until she goes through all of these things. I could write down there and loan it to her for the class, but even for the class, in order for her to take possession, she would have to go through all the... It makes it so you cannot purchase a firearm, or at least it seems like that's... They've made it so broad and so vague that they're trying to deny people the right. Oh, yeah. And the last bullet point we got to talk about, folks, is the fact that if you are a firearms owner, you're going to be on a registry. It's going to include your personal information, your name, your address, your phone number, your date and place of birth, your physical description, pictures, and more. It's going to be published annually, which means anybody who files a public disclosure request, or maybe even not even that, will have access to all of this information simply because you are the owner of a firearm. 
absolutely nuts. What can people do to help make sure that ballot measure 114 does not pass, Lars? Well, that's the big thing, especially for those of you on the West Coast. You heard about what happened in California. Everyone who had a concealed carry permit, they released their information to the public. That makes you a target for the bad guys. And for those who want to shame you for choosing to exercise your constitutional right, your neighbors, your friends, the coaches and teams, and who knows whatever else, they're going to be able to access that list. And as John said, they're required to publish it annually. It's unreal. But we're trying to organize people. We're trying to get people out there to vote against this. We're holding a number of different rallies. There's one in Hillsborough on the 13th of October. There's another one in Beaverton on the 14th. There's another one in Sherwood on the 15th. We're, we're trying to have these town halls and rallies and get people out. We're sending people to uh, our website. We, we put together a quick link, votenomeasure14.com. That'll take you to a page that has all the things that John and I've been discussing today. And just make sure you get out there. You tell your friends, you tell your family, you tell your neighbors, vote no on ballot measure 114. The website again, votenomeasure114.com. That's votenomeasure114.com. Like I said, we don't cover this issue very often in the show, but this is so alarming. We just had to today. Lars, thank you for helping us sound the alarm on this on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Enjoy a meal of wild Alaskan seafood delivered right to your door. Sina Sea offers premium quality wild Alaskan fish and shellfish to include Copper River King and Silver Salmon, Halibut, Black Cod, King Crab, and of course, Copper River Sockeye Salmon. Order it blast frozen or smoked and experience a slice of Alaska for a special meal you won't forget. Buy your seafood now at SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you with not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? That's right. You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. If you have a business that caters to outdoors enthusiasts, this is the platform for you, and you're going to find it's much more affordable than you think. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. We've got time for one more shot of Northwestern Outdoors Radio with John Cruz. I'm glad you're back. As we mentioned at the top of the hour, a lot of folks are out deer hunting this weekend. You might even be one of them yourself right now. And that's why our Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week is actually about deer. There's three types of deer found in our listening area. If you go east of the Cascades in Washington, Oregon, and also, for that matter, in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and the Dakotas, you're going to find mule deer. And you're also going to find white-tailed deer. But 
in western Oregon and western Washington as well as the coastal areas of British Columbia and Alaska, you're going to find another species of deer. It's not the mule deer. It's not the white-tailed deer. And this is your trivia question of the week. What type of deer is it? If you think you know the answer, you know what to do. Just go to our Facebook page at Northwestern Outdoors Radio. If we have the post thread up with a question, answer there. If not, just shoot us a message. You can also send us an email through our website at northwesternoutdoors.com. And just let us know. What is this third type of deer? It's not the mule deer. It's not the white-tailed deer. It's a different type of deer found west of the Cascade Crest in Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alaska. One lucky person who guesses right wins that $25 gift card we give away every week from America's Premier Outfitter, which has all the deer hunting gear you need to be successful this fall. And if you don't believe me, just head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse store You'll see exactly what I mean. On that note, we have got to go. I know that I am having a great weekend doing some fishing and hunting with my best friend Rusty Johnston around eastern Washington's Potholes Reservoir. And I hope you are having a wonderful weekend too, whether you're hunting, fishing, or just enjoying the fall weather. Until next time, do take care, God bless, and make it a point to spend some time outdoors. Outdoors.